listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on the Punch Out 225 2021 Thursday. Very happy to be back with you on this Thursday, as we always are every day at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on Breakthrough News. Plenty of things to get to, as we always do. We're going to be talking about elections in Niger in West Africa. There's big protests there in the wake of announcements of the results of a recent election. We're also going to be talking about how Congress, yes, Congress, believe it or not, believe it, is looking to help lobbyists in a big way here. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we are going to start with the issue of the battle over living wages in Congress here in the United States, which is... Continue. Well, as I mentioned, the fight over whether or not a minimum wage increase will be part of the next relief bill of any sort, much less $15 an hour, is still being waged. That battle is still being waged in the halls of Congress, whether they're going to raise it to 15 or at all. Now, of course, this is all happening in the context of workers continuing to escalate their demands for a $15 an hour minimum wage. Over the past several weeks, workers around the country, especially in North Carolina, where they have a number of these strikes, have been out striking, protesting, demanding a $15 an hour minimum wage as part of the Fight for 15 movement, which, by the way, has garnered $68 billion in wage increases since 2011. And, of course, at the same time, the back and forth between lawmakers is, well, it is a back and forth. It's unclear exactly what's happening. Things are hanging in the balance. Now, President Joe Biden, despite proposing the idea of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and eliminating the tip minimum wage, so all minimum wages, $15 an hour, federal level, by 2025, he said he doesn't believe the proposal will make it. And he seems to be more or less giving up on it, leaving it to others to fight for it. Senator Bernie Sanders, the House Progressive Caucus, even Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, are insisting that they will indeed succeed, that the minimum wage will be raised to $15 an hour by 2025 in this bill. Republicans, of course, are doing their best to make sure that there is either no or a very limited increase in the minimum wage this go-round. Now, everything, at least at this point, allegedly hinges on the Senate parliamentarian. Since Democrats are using a procedure known as budget reconciliation to pass this bill so that they only need 51 votes, it means that you can only take up a narrow subset of issues, though, when you do budget reconciliation. They have to be measures that are deemed to be revenue-raising. So there's a question about whether or not it meets those rules, and that's what the parliamentarian does, determines if they're doing things by the rules. However, as the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, as a congresswoman from the state of Washington, points out, the Senate leadership can actually overrule the parliamentarian on this issue. That's right. They can actually overrule the parliamentarian on this issue. And 
Because of that, she and many others, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are all saying that they are at least considering withdrawing some support from the bill if the final version of the bill does not have the $15 an hour minimum wage increase. Now, there's some back and forth where some of them are saying they'll only withdraw support if uh, the Democratic leadership voluntarily sets it aside rather than trying to overrule the parliamentarian. But be that as it may, there are relatively small margins really on either sides of this thing, given that some of these issues are relatively controversial. So that issue puts the whole thing in doubt, which gives some power to the minimum wage increase. But on the other hand, uh, there are many people who are against it. So again, it's hanging in the balance. Of course, the Senate could just end the filibuster and pass it that way with 51 votes, avoiding any of this, but they still want to pretend that there's this bipartisanship thing going on, as it were. And so they're trying to find other ways, and that's more or less where it stands. Without a doubt, though, the issue is very popular among regular people, forget people in Congress. As the National Employment Law Project points out, quote, in 67 of the most competitive congressional districts, fully 62% of those polled, including 59% in districts won by Republicans, favored raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. 62% of those, 67 of the most competitive congressional districts, including 59% in districts won by Republicans. Businesses, of course, are aggressively lobbying for nothing to happen or for there to be a minor minimum wage raise, that is. And in that vein, Senators Mitt Romney of Utah, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, both Republicans have offered a proposal to raise the minimum wage to $10 an hour by 2025. That would actually be about 13% less than what the minimum wage was in 1968. That's real wages, higher dollar amount now, of course. But yes, 13% less than what the minimum wage was in 1968. That's a proposal uh, that is out there, but certainly seems like it's going nowhere, but the Republicans are pushing it. Now, it's worth noting that the minimum wage would actually be about $20 an hour now, actually over $20 an hour, if wages had kept pace with productivity growth. So even the $15 an hour, which would give roughly $32 million, uh, 32 million workers raises of about $3,000 a year is still far from enough. The best illustration of that is a statement made this week by South Dakota Senator John Thune. He says he doesn't think the minimum wage should be increased at all. He references his work experience as a kid, quote unquote, saying he made $6 an hour. So people should just be able to make do. Well, Senator Thune, $6 an hour when you were a kid is $24 an hour today. So you can see the absurdity of the whole thing. But again, it's all hanging in the balance over this parliamentarian issue and whether the uh, Democrats in the Senate have the political will to push through that and just pass this thing. How it's all going to end up then, we don't really know. But one thing is clear. Despite most of the country wanting it, Congress seems at least as likely as not to do nothing in terms of increasing the minimum wage. Well, while we're in Congress here, some of you may be old enough to remember, quote unquote, earmarks. That's the congressional practice of requiring the federal budget to support specific projects. Like, you know, we're going to spend X number on housing, but here's one housing project in Chicago and you must spend X number of dollars on that on this specific project in Chicago. 
was a key element, since it was banned in 2011, was a key element in what was known as port barrel spending. That's essentially just money that's doled out for these specific projects in people's states and districts to get them to vote for certain bills. It was essentially the grease that made congressional deal-making go. Now, in 2011, in Obama's second term, or just before and then and then after, earmarks ended up basically being banned. Uh, just they looked at them a different way. So theoretically, you can still do things like this, but they were basically banned. It was the result of a few high-profile abuses in Alaska and California, so-called bridge to nowhere in Alaska, people may remember. But now Democratic leaders in Congress want to bring it back, according to the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer. So what's the biggest result of all of this? Well, as Open Secrets, the campaign finance watchdog points out, quote, uh, <clears throat> and this is quoting from something that was in the news recently, quote, our clients are excited about the prospect of a return to earmarks, and we think we can be helpful to them with our advocacy there. One senior lobbyist told Roll Call, our clients are excited about the prospect of a return to earmarks, said a senior lobbyist. Lobbyists are definitely very excited, I'm sure, because this is really their wheelhouse. Basically, the way this works is this. On any controversial bill, you got people who are for, you got people who are against. Both sides are going against each other, trying to get their way. At a certain point, obviously, one side recognizes they're not making much traction. Maybe they would give way, but they just need a little something that they can tout as a win. And lobbyists are usually the whirling dervishes, so to speak, moving between congressional offices and big businesses and wherever else they need to to make these different sorts of deals happen to make sure you get a little something to vote on a particular bill. Now, Democrats want to bring this back for relatively obvious reasons. They want to use earmarks in the event they're passing controversial legislation with big price tags, probably things around infrastructure, things around climate change, things that Republicans certainly don't want to pass or vote for. Now, rather than just in the filibuster, pass things by simple majority, where it would just be about strong-arming a handful of centrist Republicans, I mean, centrist Democrats, rather, what the Democrats want to do is use earmarks to try to bribe Republicans with a bunch of these boondoggle-type projects that will make people in their districts and states happy, but will probably do little to nothing to improve the quality of a given bill, if not make it worse. But again, it allows you to keep up this veneer that there's some form of bipartisanship going on as the Democrats are moving forward here. So they're going back to uh, the old bread and butter of deal-making that is pork barrel spending, a.k.a. earmarks. Will it happen? It's tough to say. Now, people on both sides definitely want this, but there are powerful forces on both sides that are opposed because it just becomes so clear and obvious the corruption that's going on that the corruption that we all know exists in Congress that they don't want people to know about becomes difficult to hide. But what I think is most important here to me is that the Democrats, allegedly the party of working class people, that's what they say, are opening the door to all sorts of special deals and pet projects for the ultra-rich. And at least two are dead and hundreds have been arrested in post-election protests in the West African country of Niger. Now, protests have been running there since Tuesday after the announcement of the results of Sunday's runoff elections, which made the former interior minister, Mohamed Bazoum, the winner over Mahmoud Usman. Sorry about that, Mr. Usman there. Uh, Usman is claiming that he did not win, actually, believe it or not. He's just saying that he did about 6% better than they stated he did. And the current government is blaming another opposition figure, Hama Ahmadou, who was banned from running in the elections, as being behind the protest. Now, Niger is the poorest country on earth, technically, in the way those things are measured. 
41.4% of the country lives in extreme poverty, mainly by subsistence agriculture. 41% of the country lives in extreme poverty. The country, however, actually is very, very wealthy in a mineral sense. and is actually the fourth largest producer of uranium. There's also oil and gold there and other things. There's little to no development, however, in Niger, as you guessed, from 41.4% of people being in extreme poverty. And the protests really seem to just be a part of click struggles amongst the ruling elite. All the players, for instance, I mentioned above are former figures in the government. Usman was actually the president of the country. They're all deeply implicated in the state of affairs over the past few decades that is entirely neo-colonial, where elites profit off the mineral wealth that's just speared out of the country. Most of the money accrues to companies in France and other Western nations. None of it trickles down to the 41.4% of the people in Niger who are living in extreme poverty. Now, in recent years, Niger has also been a significant site of spillover from the Boko Haram conflict in the Sahel. An offshoot of Boko Haram has grown in Niger and Chad by filling holes left by the fact that there is no real service or economic development happening for people in Niger. They're seeking to change that with a sort of very strict, allegedly inspired by Islam state-building project that spans Niger, Chad, and other countries. But nevertheless, they're addressing real problems. So you've got all these issues. You've got extreme poverty. You've got corrupt elites. You've got the neo-colonial challenges. You've got, in many ways, the collapse of the traditional nature of the country with these various state-building projects looking to fill the void that had been left by the major political forces. And that being said, neither of the main parties in the election seem to really offer that much in the way of change. They certainly didn't bring it when they were in there before. They're part of the reason why the whole thing is set up this way. But undoubtedly, the ability to mobilize mass protests by some elements of the opposition does speak to mass discontent in the country. And that's no surprise, given how things are going. Now, it seems likely that protests may wane in the face of not only heavy repression, again, it's about 468 people who were arrested, by the way, but also the fact that no one is even really truly contesting whether or not Bozum even really won as much as whether or not the process itself was 100% kosher. So ultimately, it seems that there may be no real outcome other than Bozum ultimately becoming the leader. But events here in Niger overall, however they turn out specifically here, are just another reminder of how devastating the neo-colonial status quo is for Africa. And that's going to do it for us here today on the Punch-Out 225 2021. Don't forget, we will be live at BT Newsroom across all your social media platforms tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with the Freedom Side. We're going to be talking about the brutal realities of mass incarceration in many different forms. We're going to be talking to individuals and the organizers and people on the outside in Texas about how the terrible cold snap in Texas affected the already brutal conditions there. We're going to be talking to people who have been caught up in pretrial detention people facing unbelievable long sentences, all the organizing that's going around, around lifting up the issues that are happening to those inside and to push back against mass incarceration. It's going to be great across all your social media platforms tonight, the 25th of February, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Breakthrough News. 